Hi, this is Leonard Peikoff here to apply Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism to your real-life questions. My responses cover subjects of general interest, such as human relationships, career, and morality, but not current politics. For the present, my answers are posted every other week on Mondays, and Dr. Jerome Brook answers questions on current events on the alternate Mondays. You can listen to full episodes on iTunes or listen to single questions or full episodes on my website. Several years of podcasts are now easily searchable by topic or keywords. If you have a philosophical question to ask, simply go to www.peakoff.com and that's spelled P as in Peter, E-I-K-O-F-F, like the word off at the end, peakoff.com. And of course, feel free to follow me on Facebook and Twitter. This is the final podcast that will be on this uh, website. I have to bring it to an end, so I want to give you my reasons and then a few other things, a mixture of things, this being the end. And I do not know at the outset here how long it's going to take, but bear with me if you're interested. I'm going to start by giving you some numbers, which will give you an idea of why I think it's time to close. This uh, podcast started as occasional written brief answers to questions that were sent to me. And it evolved into a regular, most of the time weekly show. It's been going since 2007, which is about nine years. In that time, uh, we've done mostly me, but I did have other people helping, such as your own, for example. But in that nine years, we produced 419 podcasts. The average answers of each on each was about six. Did about six questions per show. So if you multiply all that out, we did somewhere... I did most of somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 questions. So I don't think you can say I didn't do enough. That raises really the first big reason for ending it. What more do I have to say? I mean, it would be of general uh, philosophic interest. Uh, maybe incremental minor things here and there. But if you uh, put together... The books that I've written and the courses and uh, lectures and the radio show and the podcast, etc., it pretty much exhausts the last nook and cranny in my mind. I always wanted to do things intellectually that were not for the academic or philosophically educated public. And uh, that's why I started the radio show. But then when I went to the podcast, that was a much more satisfying way of uh, discussing philosophy without discussing academic philosophy. So the podcast has been very satisfying uh, to me, and I'm happy I did it, but I pretty much run out. And I think that's illustrated by the changing questions. You know, I'm still getting some good questions, but if you notice... The questions are increasingly personal about me rather than about philosophy. Now, I have no problem answering personal questions, but I don't see a show which is significantly devoted to why is my hair so long 
And uh, what do I feel about having been Canadian, etc.? I don't think that that would be, or shouldn't be, as far as I know, of any particular interest. And there's more of those than, uh, you know, of the kind of questions the podcast was designed for. Now, the one kind of question I wish I had had more of would be questions that I remember about Ayn Rand aspects of her that I, that I saw or experienced and that I would be happy to share. But several people wrote me about uh, why don't I include more of those, but the reason is that I can't remember. I can't just out of the blue say, oh yeah, on Tuesday when we were discussing cabbage. So what I needed was prompting. For instance, if someone would just pick something and say, when you had breakfast on, on, did she have anything special? It might have triggered, but even so, I've scoured my memory as far as I can remember. Everything, you know, that would be of interest, I've said or written one way or uh, another. Yeah, the last uh, real reason, practically speaking, why I have to end the broadcast is that it is taking up time which at my age, I just turned 83, you know, the time is, we're crudely running out. Well, you want to know what the time is? I didn't just come on the air and say, okay, here's the answer. We got, on the average, I'd say 20 a week, and recently we were getting over 100 a week. I have to read every one and evaluate, is this worth being on the show or not? And then I have a sort of a staff which specialize in different things. So I have to decide which I'm going to farm out to different people and which I want to answer. And then I never answered them completely extemporaneously. I would take a few minutes in making scrawled, illegible notes to guide me in what I'm saying. And then I have to record you know, every month or whatever, but I record three or four episodes uh, in those days. And then I had to edit the website where the questions were written out. On top of that, there were quite a number each month of questions where I thought this deserves an answer, but it's not worth presenting to a full audience, and it can be done in one sentence. So I would write one-sentence answers to uh, quite a number of people, and that throws in more time. So if you add it all up, it's more time. I mean, I'm not complaining. It's not like writing a book, but it's a little bit of extra time. And, uh, you know, at my stage, at least for me, the uh, amount of sustained focus, in other words, hard, full focus that I can carry out in a given stretch of time, like for four hours or for six hours, is not as long as it was, you know, when I was younger. I get tired. I find it harder to take in and retain complex things. So at some point, I have to say, if I want to finish my novel, I've got to get out of my life anything that requires sustained focus. And I'm systematically uh, doing that. But uh, I just have to keep on cutting until I feel all of my capacity to think is on the one thing that I really want to do. Let me say positively that doing this podcast has been a pleasure for me. And even given what I said, I will miss it. I enjoyed the teaching. I've always loved teaching. I liked having a soapbox where I could spout off on things that were on my mind. And 
Another big thing, after decades of dealing only with broad abstractions, it was fun, and that's the word, it was fun to talk about issues on a concrete, personal uh, level. And I might just add something I've said several times. I have tried to focus specifically on the questions of young people, so far as I know the age of the questioner. And I really hope that this has been of some value to those people, especially if you started out as badly confused as I did. If it even helped you two steps up, then it was worth it as far as me because I have tremendous sympathy for people plunging uh, into this. And now I mentioned, uh, I'm not too organized today, but you don't have to take notes because there's nothing profound to keep. I said I want to keep my focus entirely on my novel. So if you're interested, and as publicity, I'm going to add one little note that I don't think I've made public about the novel. I'm still telling the same exact story, the same characters, same everything, but I have changed the setting. I've laid it, since it's pretty autobiographical as it stands, I set it in the hometown that I grew up in, in Canada. And I'm taking as the title now a true statement that was made in an American newspaper some years ago. This is the title of my story, and this was the actual headline. Quote, Winnipeg colder than Mars. And Winnipeg being the city. The actual fact was, on that time when they measured, Mars was 45 degrees below zero. Winnipeg was 46, so we were colder than, than Mars. Now, uh, you know, it's not obvious why I put that in, but there is a deeper meaning, which I see in this, which integrates perfectly with the rest of the novel. So if you find that intriguing, I suggest that you check out the novel at Amazon. Um, the best I can guess, they should have it by uh, Christmas of 2019, give or take. I want to go now to some memories that I have that pertain to question and answer sessions in my life. And I've picked only a few that involve Ayn Rand one way or another, kind of like my development as an answerer of questions. I think that's relevant to, you know, background to uh, podcast where all I do is answer questions. So I'll start with how bad I was. One of the first uh, years that I met Ayn Rand, there was a company of people in the room, and I was quiet because I was obviously junior to her friends, and they were talking about how would you establish the age at which a child reaches maturity and therefore entitled to drink and a driver's license, etc. And there was different views on earlier and later, so, you know, in my impetuous ignorance, I just blurted out, oh, well, I think I know what the answer is. Why don't we get a board of psychologists? And they can investigate each kid and say, yes, this one passes, he's mature, and this one doesn't. So we don't need that one age. We can adapt it to each person. And I thought, you know, that's the original solution. Well, if you know Ayn Rand, uh, she expressed her view of that combined with her shock and astonishment that a guest of hers would say such a thing. And I was baffled. What was wrong with it? And then she explained to me, how would they decide what maturity meant? 
What if they decided that maturity meant recognizing that emotions are superior to reason and that it's a naive, childish uh, idea to think you could be go by the mind or to think that capitalism would work in the modern world, etc. In other words, if you have as an official legal way of judging the privileges or rights of the citizens, a board of people, they have to have an approved standard, which means the government is in charge of evaluating ideologies, which means the end of the right of free speech. Is that what you're advocating? Because I was totally horrified. No, I never thought of that at all. From that, I learned one important question, one important factor. Do not blurt out anything just because the words have formed in your tongue. Think about what its implications are. And, you know, you don't have to think for a year, but at least for five minutes before in a room full of people with iron rent, you come out with something. And believe it, I didn't really know that before. My idea of conversation was to just say what, what's there. You think about it later, but uh, it's much better to think about it on a time. So I learned that. And now let's go to, um, i give you three memories. In the early days, well, maybe after I'd known her three or four years, there were, at that point, some... We didn't call it objectivists yet, but some new people who were just learning her philosophy. And I had been assigned, it was totally voluntary, to teach them, to help them understand uh, the philosophy. So I gave, in a private setting, some lectures organizing what I could. And they were, they were pretty good, you know, for considering how much of a beginner I was. And then I said, are you having a final exam? I said, yeah, sure. She said, well, why don't you have it at my apartment? So I can watch. It was an oral final. I said, you want me to have, ask questions about your philosophy and judge the validity of the answers in your apartment with you watching? She said, sure. I know you know. Don't worry about it. So, <laughs> I, you know, I had to say no and looks like, you know, or I said yes. So I said, okay. And I felt my way through the exam and she was smiling uh, making, you know, minor corrections in what the students said. I was defining, asking them to define branches of philosophy. And then I saw she was taking notes. And I thought, oh, my God, she's taking notes. It's not because I'm saying something so brilliant. So when it was over, I said, I, I noticed you're taking notes. And she said, yes, you were very good. She didn't say that, you know, with ravenous enthusiasm. But, you know, honestly, you were very good, but you made one mistake. So I said, what was that? She said, you didn't define metaphysics correctly. And I said, well, I said, metaphysics is the science that is the nature of reality. She says, that's wrong. You cannot use the word reality there. It has to be studies the nature of the universe because the universe is simply the fact out there. That's what we study. Reality brings in consciousness. Reality is the fact to the extent that it gets into your mind. For instance, you can say, my friend is dead. That's the universe. That's the fact out there. But it's not real to me, or it's only partly real to me. Once you bring in real, you're not talking about what's out there, but what's out there as and to the extent it's absorbed by a consciousness. And that is not what metaphysics studies. Epistemology studies consciousness, but metaphysics studies what's out there. And that one example put in my mind the idea 
that it is not acceptable. I mean, once you develop enough, it is not acceptable to say some word that approximately is what you mean. If you say the universe in this context, you have to know why the universe rather than reality, or why the universe rather than the stars, etc. You don't have to go through all the possibilities. But again, I had the idea, well, if you say, you know, in general what you mean, this particular experience really gave me the idea, be precise. Now, if you overdo that, you can't talk because you have to go through a hundred possibilities. But I mean, just the few that you know you should review if you're making some kind of formal statement. And certainly a teacher has to know why it's this kind of you know, wording. Now I'm going to give you as the final memory here, my first official question and answer. Not in her apartment and not to a tiny group. And this was the setup. This was in 1958, and at that point I was 24. Now remember that I define the time at which I fully, fully understood objectivism as about 91 because it took me about 40 years from the time I met her to actually absorb, integrate, and be able to rhapsodize on everything. So this was, you know, I was 24. This is a long time before that. And this is the very first time I had an official Q&A. And this was the setup. One person, whose name I don't care to mention, was lecturing uh, a group who had come to understand objectivism on one floor, I think it was of the Roosevelt Hotel in New York. And Ayn Rand was lecturing a couple floors above. Each of them had an audience of about 400. It was really, you know, tremendous audience for our discussions of Atlas Shrugged, which had just uh, come out. And then the, the question was, it took about 10 minutes with the elevators and plowing through the people in the one room <clears throat> for them to switch rooms. And so Ian would go to the other room and he would come uh, to the, her room. But somebody had to cover the audience for that interval. And two people were picked, me being one. Well, of course, the idea of being an official spokesman for objectivism, answering 400 people with the idea that these are people potentially interested in objectivism, and if I screw up totally, you know, I'll never hear the end of it. I was very anxious, and I told Ayn several times, I, I just don't think I'm ready for that. She said, oh, I'm sure you won't uh, have a problem. I've talked to you. And, you know, it's only certain basic questions which I'm sure you can answer. Don't even worry about it. I said, okay. <laughs> and I started out with the hope that there would be some, you know, obvious question at the beginning, like, is AA? And I could say, yes, let's go to the next one. But the very first question was, what does objectivism think of Moby Dick, the novel by Melville? which I had never read. And I swore at the end of that I'm going to go home and read it, and to this day, I never read it. But I had to say something. I didn't want objectivism to look like, we don't read, we don't know famous literature. So this is the strategy I adopted instantaneously. I said, well, you know, a novel is very complex. In it. it has many aspects. So could you specify what it is in Moby Dick, what aspects you think we might have a different view on. And I kept 
precising him until it turned into a philosophical question, purely philosophical. And at that point, I gave a nice speech what the answer was and so on, and he was satisfied. But <laughs> I never said what I thought of Moby Dick, only what I thought of having a certain attitude to a whale and so on. So I thought, okay, I got through the worst, and the second question was okay, I don't remember, but no problem. And then the third question was, what does objectivism think of Hieronymus Bosch? And I thought, Jesus, I never even heard of this one. I don't even know what field he's in. Hieronymus Bosch. So I looked around. I couldn't even, you know, fake that one. Uh, I didn't know what, what, he was, what he did. So I looked around, and thank God, Marianne Suries was sitting near the front, and she is an art historian. So I figured out the chances, as I've never heard of him, is that it's not literature. Maybe it's in her field. So I saw her smiling and nodding. So I said to the audience, we're very lucky. Instead of getting an amateur's answer from me, uh, she's going to Marianne, I gave her credentials, will tell you all about him. And sure enough, she got up. He was apparently a medieval weirdo painter, and she described his paintings and what she thought of them and why they were philosophically this and that. The audience was really intrigued, so I was saved a second time. And thereafter, it went okay. I was still, you know, a little bit shaken up. The two of them had been such grief, but it went on, and then Ayn Rand arrived, and uh, she uh, whispered to me as she passed the podium, I told you it would be easy. So I never told her that it was something other than easy. I never, for, I can see myself standing at that lectern. Okay, now the other thing I want to do, just to show you, I keep questions that I don't answer with the idea, I mean, if I think they're good questions, the idea that I'll maybe try to answer them sometime. So here's three that I picked. One from June, one from July, one from August. Is making fun of someone's physical appearance always immoral? And if so, why? No, as a flat statement, why would it always be immoral? There's many situations in which people deliberately do something that they want you to laugh at. This is common on the stage, the way people do them up. A lot of people have a crazy hairstyle, so you'll notice it and laugh at them. In fact, I did that once. I, at one time, just out of perverse self-assertion, let my hair grow way down to my shoulders. And it happened that at that very time, I met a young lady who had a ring through her nose. So we both would be laughable, and we actually then, not then, but ultimately, got married. So I didn't mind if people laughed at me. I wanted to make that impression. You know, the real reason was there was a lot of very straight-laced objectivists who couldn't imagine a good person having long hair. And that really riled me because you don't define a philosophy but whether your hair is long or whether it's orange like Rorick, etc. So it was like a kind of defiant uh, statement. But I wouldn't have a problem at all if you laughed. Now, it's a different thing. If somebody has a deformity by nature, like he's a midget, or he's got a club foot, etc. I don't think it's immoral to laugh, but I think it's cruel. Why do it? And anyway, it is metaphysically false to laugh. And let me explain that one. When you laugh at something, 
you are saying it's not real. It can't be real. It's ridiculous. So if you're looking at somebody with a club fort and laughing, you're saying he can't have it. But he does. So you have to, at that point, the appropriate reaction, I think, is either pity or just say that's the way he is. He's living his life. It's not affecting me. It doesn't affect any potential relationship with him. Forget it. And there's a case where I would say you have nothing to gain egoistically to laugh, and all you're doing is a purely negative response to hurt somebody. So there's no justification for it. I mean, it's not immoral in the sense of murder or robbery, etc. But I think it's mean. Now, here is a one I had to read. It's asked about Atlas Shrugged, but I want to change it to one of my books because the answer would be the same. Assume that the dim hypothesis, which is the favorite of my book, my favorite, assume that it went unpublished and unrecognized. What would you do with the work toward the end of your life? Would you destroy it and leave life as you found it without that book? Or would you hope that it would catch on after your death, comma, or would you do nothing about it, period? Nothing. I would do nothing about it. Why in the world would I destroy a work that I consider of such great value, and uh, if they don't recognize it now, even if they never recognize it, even if it's not for 10 million years, I want it in existence uh, as long as possible because it's a real value. Perhaps at some point it will be discovered, but even if not, the world as I'm dying, I'm leaving a much better world if it's there than if it's gone. So I still get the last moments of joy from it. And your idea was to destroy it because people don't appreciate it is what? You're cutting off your nose despite your face. I'm not going to wipe out my achievement to show them you didn't use it, so go to hell. That's ridiculous. I'm not a means to anything pertaining to them. Now, what I hope it would catch on. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean anything if you're going to die. If somebody says to you as you're, you know, at the end, your book is not selling well, and it is not a good prospect for the future, what the hell, why tell me now? I'm not in that realm anymore. I don't want royalty reports up to my last breath. At a certain point, I'm transitioning out of this world, and I don't want it, and I'm not interested in it. Now, hope, as Ayn Rand said, is never, if it's significant in your life, as it is in this question, is never a valid emotion, because it is. I want something, but it's totally not up to me. So I have to beg the universe. I have to hope, I have to wish that some force will provide it for me. So it goes along you know, with faith, hope, and charity, all of which demean a man. So I wouldn't hope, you know, you can write a letter and say, uh, I hope you'll come to dinner, but that's not what we're talking about here. The thing I would do is nothing, because there's nothing that I want to do except leave it alone and go to uh, my uh, oblivion. What circumstances must exist for one to decide to have a child out of rational self-interest? Well, I came up with four. There's more. These are the four that came uh, right to my mind. Most important, you have to want a child for selfish reasons without any others being involved. Because of what you think it's going to add to your enjoyment of life. It's not rational. Have a child because your mother-in-law expects it. 
Uh, because uh, the people you went to school are already having kids and you're getting behind, etc., etc. It has to be you want a human being that you created because of the joy you are going to get from it. And anything else is a side effect. Second, I put down, you have to be able to afford it. You have to have or be able to get the money. Child is expensive, however you bring it up. It's more expensive than a dog. And a dog, in my experience, is hugely expensive. But you just itemize the things you have to get from the, uh, the crib on through uh, the tuition at college. It's a huge amount. And I totally disapprove of the idea of, well, have the child and Donald Trump will pass a program, you know, which will pay for it. You have to have or, or see your way clear to getting it. It's okay from, from the point of view of a child. It's okay if you loan the money or you get it voluntary. We're not talking here about earning it, but having it so you can pay what's required. The improper thing is to undertake an enormous cost and say, well, I have no money now, but somehow. Now, third, very important. You have to have the time that you are willing to spend with the child. And on this point, I want to stress something that Ayn Rand first told me. So at this point, I know I'm speaking for her and me. She was opposed to the early use of daycare for the child. In other words, a parent has the child, and the mother takes off, whatever, six months, dumps the kid in daycare and goes back to her regular career. She thought that was terrible because, she said, it gives the child a completely wrong orientation, which it will be very hard for him ever to correct. And this is what she meant. If the child is at home with the mother, the mother, she's a decent mother, will be concerned with the child's cognitive development. Not that she'll be giving homeschool lessons, but will be pointing out things and will showing him things. He will be the focus and he will be learning from her to orient himself to reality, to facts. There'll be nobody else that he has to relate to but his mother, and she is concerned with making him, you know, giving him love and making him equipped to deal with reality. But if you dump a six-month or a two-year or a three-year-old kid who's not yet firmly related to reality into a college, people the same age, that child is going to learn the lesson that his function in life or his basic orientation should be relating to others, relating to others, doing what they want or having them do what you want. It'll be a social rather than a reality-oriented basis. And she did not think that people could have a reality-oriented basis unless they had that from the beginning for years. I, I, I don't remember exactly, but three or four years anyway, at which point they were firm enough that they could start socializing with people. Now, I know that that is a very unpopular thing with a lot of mothers because they want a child and they want a career. So I'm not going to make it uh, weaker than she and I think, but I don't think you're immoral if you send them in early, but then you try to figure out something. So reality will remain much more important to the child than the kids he's thrown with for six or whatever hours a day. And now as far as spending time, I want to emphasize one other thing here. It is very important that you talk to your baby from day one. They have done many studies that parents who talk in regular sentences about regular things where the child has no idea at all, it's just babbling, but the child gets that you're saying something to him. 
has no clue as to what, those children end up with an increased intelligence that the others can never catch up to. And they tried to see whether it was just the voice. So they brought up kids listening to talk radio from morning to night. And they did not do as well as those talked to by their parents. And then the worst were the ones who were just put in institutions and just left with no conversation. They never developed. The idea is that the continuous conversation tells them there's something to focus on, there's some difference in all this sound, it orients them to a conceptual development. Uh, So, you know, from day one, I carried my daughter around took her before paintings in the house and said, that's a mountain, that's a this. She had no idea what I was talking about, but uh, it was valuable. And it's easy to do because even if you say stupid things, the idea is to keep talking to her and let her feel she's being talked to, her or him. Now, the fourth and last, I would say, you have to have some idea of how you are going to bring that child up. You don't have to be an expert. You can learn a lot after the child is born, but you have to know something and have some kind of viewpoint on things like, what are important developments in the child? Are they uh, prepared for? Is going to a new school something you have to know how to handle? What are you going to do if people talk about Santa Claus or talk about God? What kind of education do you want this child to have? What kind of discipline are you prepared to give? Those are the kind of questions and many more that you have to have an idea of. It is wrong to have a baby, even if you got the money and the time and everything, and the kid smashes a vase, and you say, I don't really know. What do I do now? Now, you know, you've got a whole range of possibilities that you have to decide. You don't want to punch him in the face, and you don't want to say, oh, that's okay, anything you do is fine. So you've got to figure out, and believe me, it isn't easy. It really isn't easy. But I found discipline the hardest thing because you want the child to love you, but discipline they don't want. So, but you have to do it. Now, they, that's basically what I would say about this. And the only last thing uh, on this would be somebody gave me before Kira was born a book called A Baby Maybe. And one part listed all the great things, and one part listed all the horrible things. And you read it all, and you decide. Well, I read it all, and I was going to do it anyway, but I was curious to know. And my actual fact, once Kira was born and being brought up, was the negative part, all the problems, was true. But the positive part was very underestimated. It was a hell of a lot more positive than that book or any I've read capture. So if you're ready to go for a lot of sleepless nights and trips to the doctor and falls and crises, etc., etc., the reward, in my opinion, is beyond uh, description. Okay, I've come finally to thank you. I want to thank all of you uh, for listening and for being such a great responsive uh, audience. You know, at one point they measured somehow the number of hits, and uh, we were getting 40,000 hits a month. Now I know you're laughing, it's not Justin Bieber, but, you know, for uh, abstract new philosophy, it's not bad. I'd like to have had 40 million, but as they say, it is what it is. I want to take a moment to thank my very helpful and diligent staff. The first, of course, Carl Barney, who financed the whole thing. Carlos Silk, who was in charge of the website. Jerome Brook, 
Of course, you know, near the last part of the show, did half the work and was extremely valuable to the show. John Dawson in Australia, who took all the questions that I thought were good, but I didn't want to answer, and he answered. Dina Fetterman, you know, who tragically died, but during her life, she took all the questions that I thought were covered in the literature or in the courses somewhere and gave a bibliographical citation where the questioner could get the answer. And then when she died, Aaron Smith took over for her. And also Corey Gonzalez, who was the sound man who was able to make statements and speeches by me filled with coughs, sound like I wasn't coughing, which is a major technical achievement. And also, a brief word, I had specialists in various fields uh, that I felt could answer the question better than anybody else. And in particular, I asked Sue Crawford for parenting questions, Marianne Suries for art history questions, and Amy Wyatt for law. So thank you all very much. And now, just a closing thought here. I, uh, you have a hard world around and ahead of you now. And I mean something even wider than uh, Trump and Hillary, although they're certainly hard enough. But to fight it, you have your two most crucial weapons. You have the strength of youth, that's certainly most of you, and the power of truth. And that is a great and enviable combination. I say envy because I envy that. I, at this point, have only one of them, and it's not enough. I wish there were a rational way of saying what I feel at this moment. I feel God bless you all, but I have to say that I feel it in a secular version, and instead I'll give on around the last words when she said to people goodbye, she always said, and good premises. Thank you. If you want to know more about Ayn Rand's philosophy, I invite you to ask me a question. I can't answer them all, but I do read them all. Just write to leonard at peakoff.com. And if you haven't already done so, start by reading Ayn Rand's two most important novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. And I might add that it wouldn't hurt you to read my latest book, The Dim Hypothesis.